Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. You know, most Christians I know do not legit practice the Sabbath. Yeah, we barely even know what that means anymore. Yet Jesus claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Is there an area of lordship that we're missing out on in our lives? Is Jesus really the Lord of our lives the way he wants to be? It's our 12th week in the study of Mark, and we talked about this. We talked about this last week. In Mark chapter 2, Mark begins to shift his tone and his pace. Things begin to change in our study of Jesus as we get to about the middle of chapter 2. In Mark chapter 1, uh, Mark is really clear to show us some narrative units that establish who Jesus is and what he's doing while he's among us. And you see clearly not just who he is, but how everybody feels about him. In fact, I got kind of a list here of uh, how people respond to Jesus in chapters 1 and 2. You see that they're astonished, they're amazed, they can't stop talking about him, uh, they bring him their sick and demon possessed. Uh, they come to him from everywhere. Uh, people are always gathering around to hear him, and they are just amazed, and they're talking about Jesus, right? That's kind of what we've seen so far. But in chapter 2, things start to change a little bit. There's a shift. Jesus starts getting some pushback, some questions. Things shift from green to red. They start asking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is Jesus a blasphemer? God alone forgives. Why does Jesus claim that he can forgive sin? They ask the question, why does he eat with such scum? And in verse 18 of chapter 2, why don't you and your disciples fast? At first, all of the little bios units that Mark is showing us, they all kind of end the same way. Uh, everyone's amazed and astonished at Jesus, and they can't stop talking about him. But in today's unit that we're going to look at, today's story ends very differently. It goes from everyone's astonished, amazed, and can't stop talking to, look at this in Mark 3, 6. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. What? What has happened? How can Jesus have gone from everybody loves him to now they want to kill him? How, what could he have possibly done to change the way people feel about him? Remember, we've been looking at it the last couple of weeks. Jesus has been acting, you know, kind of out of bounds. We talked about the boundaries that everybody's kind of drawn on God and what God's doing. And Jesus is acting out of bounds. And we've seen Jesus do things that really kind of rattle everyone's cage, that seem to demonstrate that he's above the law. Right? I've got kind of a list of things that Jesus does. He forgives the paralytic. Who is he to forgive anyone? He recruits a tax collector to be on his team. A tax collector, really? He attends a shady party like you did in college. Remember? Yeah, uneasy laughter. Uh, he and his disciples are not fasting when you should be fasting. And Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. He's identifying himself as the 
Messiah. He's acting out of bounds. He's starting to rattle some cages. And we're going to look at two stories. Mark is showing us one thing about Jesus, and he takes two stories to explain it to us. It's really one story in two parts. And so we're going to look at this today as we're studying the life of Jesus in the book of Mark. So I hope you'll join me. Pick up with me in Mark 2, verse 23. This is part one. Mark 2, 23. One Sabbath, as he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What they're doing is they're walking through and they're, they're picking grain. They're rubbing him. Mark, Matthew and Luke tell us they're rubbing him in between their hands. They're separating the wheat from the chaff and they're, they're eating as they're walking. They're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath law. Is this important? It sure was to the religious people of the day because Sabbath is holy, right? It's holy. It's sacred. It's a sacred day. They look at Sabbath very differently than the way we look at Sabbath. Sabbath goes all the way back to creation, right? We see it at the very beginning. God creates the entire universe in six days, and he's pleased with everything. So on the seventh day, God chooses to rest, and he blesses that day, and he makes it holy. Sabbath is a holy day. God did it, so we should do it. Sabbath is very, very, very important to the Jewish people. Much, much, much later, when God enters into covenant with his chosen people, the people of Israel, God gives them commands, and the fourth command is the Sabbath command, right? In Exodus 20 is where we find it. He says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, keeping it set apart. It's not like any other day. It is to be very different than all the other six days. He says, you have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. He's saying that the way of the world is that you got seven days a week, so you better work hard to squeeze all you can to get whatever you can get out of each of those seven days. You're just gonna work and work and work. Remember, that's what the curse was. It was that by the toil of your hands, you will barely eke out an existence in this wilderness. And so the way of the world is to work and work and work to just barely make it. But God is saying, no, 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 no. My way is that you'll work six, but you'll rest one. You'll work hard six days, but then you'll take a day to rest, to catch up physically and emotionally and spiritually. It's six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of wilderness chaos, one day of garden. Sabbath is supposed to remind you of who you're supposed to be. You got six days of doing, but you got one day of being. And I want you to be with me. It should be a glorious, holy day for you to stop and rest. 
this is important to God and it's important to God that it's important to us. That's why he says in Exodus 16, he says, they, that's my people, must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. It's a gift. It's a gift. That's the first blank on your page. Sabbath was a gift from God. It's a beautiful gift to remind you of the garden in the middle of your wilderness chaos. That's beautiful, isn't it? But somehow, something changed. In, in their zeal to be as obedient to God as they possibly could, the religious leaders established no less than 39 categories of work on Sabbath. 39 categories of things you can and can't do on Sabbath day. Lots and lots of categories and lots and lots of rules for each category. These categories had to do with food preparation of how much you could write, of what you could build or not build. You, you couldn't start fires. You couldn't put out a fire. Uh, you could not carry certain things. You couldn't walk more than two-thirds of a mile on Sabbath day. You can't light a candle. You can't carry a handkerchief. I mean, they had all these very meticulous, specific rules about what you could not do. And this, this wasn't just an Old Testament historical thing. We saw it live and in person when we were there in Israel just a couple of weeks ago. Yet we arrived at our Jerusalem hotel on Friday evening. And we got there, and we're all loading in. We've got a big busload of people, and we got all of our suitcases, and we're just trying to get into the rooms. We're exhausted from a long day of travel. We've traveled down from Galilee, and we, we get there, and we just want to get to our rooms. Our rooms are on the 8th and ninth floor in this hotel. And so we're all just trying to get to our rooms, just trying to get there, and we get to the bank of elevators, and we have to wait forever. It took forever for us to get to our rooms. That's because they had one of these elevators there that was the Sabbath elevator. And this elevator went to all floors on the building always. Like when you get in on the first floor, it goes to the second floor and it stops, even if nobody has to get off on the second floor. And then it goes to the third floor and stops, and the fourth floor, and the fifth floor, and you just stop all the way up to the eighth or the ninth floor. And then the same thing when you got to come back down, it stops at every floor. You know why? Because it's Sabbath, and on Sabbath, you're not allowed to push a button in an elevator. I'm serious. That's the way that it is over there. Even now, they're very, very Sabbath observant. In other words, next blank on your page, Sabbath became about what you couldn't do. Sabbath became all about the rules and about what you could not do. It was intended as a beautiful gift from God, but now it's become about a bunch of burdensome rules. This beautiful gift has been distorted and disfigured, and its meaning and its power have been somewhat lost. But boy, are they meticulous about it. And they sure were in Jesus' day. So here's Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking through the grain fields, and as they're walking, they're just plucking the heads of grain, and they're just eating as they're walking. So are we clear with what's going on here? Do we understand that they're breaking the Sabbath rules? This means yes. Okay, good, good, thank you. 
All right, so they asked the question, why are you breaking the Sabbath law? And Jesus responds very thoughtfully to them. So look at what Jesus says in verse 25 and 26. He says, well, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. What is Jesus talking about here? He's telling a story that, okay, what? <laughs> it's okay to go into the temple and eat on the Sabbath? Yeah, okay, so Jesus is pointing back to a story that these Pharisees, these religious people would know well. It's in 1 Samuel. If you remember, some of you know the story, David and his guys are running and hiding from who? Yeah, evil King Saul. King Saul saw David as a threat to his authority, and so he was out to kill young David. And so uh, he's literally trying to murder David. So they're kind of running from place to place and just hiding out. And at one point, they're starving hungry, and they get to a, a synagogue, and, and David's like, hey, Abathar. What a cool name, by the way. Name your dog Abathar. Sounds like a Lord of the Rings name. He's like, hey, Abathar, we're starving. Do you have any food for us to eat? And Abathar, the priest, the religious leader, the guy who should know better, he says, all I got is the holy bread. In that day, they had 12 loaves of unleavened bread arranged in rows on a golden table, and it represented the 12 tribes of Israel in the presence of God. This was called the bread of the presence. And uh, it was out for a week, every week. And then each week they put new bread out. And the bread was sacred. It was holy. So it was only to be touched, only to be eaten by the priests themselves. Because it's holy bread. Nobody can touch the bread. The bread is holy. It's the Sabbath bread. And here's the priest going, help yourself to the holy bread and he lets them eat the holy bread that's what Jesus is talking about here when he tells the story this would be a great violation against the Sabbath laws this would be out of bounds and Jesus is saying look 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 did you not see what's happening here he's not saying well they did it so we can do it that's not what he's saying He's showing them this great, deep truth about God that they should know. God says mercy is better than sacrifice. God says loving others is more important than keeping all the rules. He's saying that human need supersedes your cold religion. He's saying that relationships are more important than rules. Jesus is saying that Sabbath is a gift and you've turned it into a burden. The Sabbath was meant to bring life, but the way you observe it feels a lot more like death. So he says to them in verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord 
even of the Sabbath. He's like, no, we don't serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves us. We aren't a God's gift to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is God's gift to us. And he says, so the Son of Man, this is the first time Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. We'll talk about what that means at a later time. But he says, the Son of Man is Lord. I am Lord of the Sabbath. This is huge. He's saying, I'm the one that gave this gift. It was my voice that thundered down at Mount Sinai saying how holy this day was. This was all my idea, and I'm telling you, you've ruined it. I'm telling you, you've forgotten what it's all about. It's supposed to be a gift, and you've made it a burden. You work so hard to do all the right things. You have your checklist, and you're really good at checking all the boxes to make sure you don't break God's laws. But dude, you're missing the forest for all the trees. You've lost the big picture here. You're great on the details, but you're missing what this is really all about because that's what sin does. It blinds you to see the big picture, to see the truth, to see what's most important. Sin blinds us and we'll never be able to see what's most important. So in all your meticulous rule following religious people, with all your best efforts, you're not pleasing God. You're actually angering God. You think you're doing all the right things, but you're really just ticking him off more and more. And God's judgment is coming for you. The verdict has already been given, and the verdict is guilty, and the punishment is death for you, religious people. But the Son of Man has appeared on the scene He pleases God with everything he does. And he goes to the cross, and the punishment for your sin is laid on him, and he dies on your behalf. And then three days later, he rises again to bring new life. You've been working so hard to please God, and you've only been ticking him off, but he's done all the work necessary to please God. Nothing more needs to be done. He said it himself on the cross. It is finished. So why you're working so hard, why you're trying so hard, why you're checking all the boxes, rest in Jesus. Can I get an amen? That's why the writer of Hebrews says that if Joshua, Yeshua, had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. There is a special rest waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. What this means is, next blank on your page, that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our rest. We can't work hard enough to please God so we rest in Christ because he's already done all the work and we trust that his sacrifice on our behalf is actually good enough. Is it good enough? Is his work for us good enough? Has he pleased God well enough? Yes, he's done all of the work so now we can rest in him. So Paul writes to the Colossians and says, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies 
or even Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. He's saying, no wonder Jesus seems out of bounds. No wonder he's rattling everybody's cage because he isn't a box checker. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he is our rest today. Can I get an amen? amen. So does everybody understand the point Mark is trying to make here? Okay, well, he makes his point one level deeper by giving us one more story to communicate this idea. And I want us to look at the next ironic story. And I'm just telling you, I'm just going to give you the heads up. This is the one that's going to hurt your feelings a little bit. Okay, this is the one where the rubber hits the road for you and me a little bit. Okay, so just get ready. In Mark 3, yeah, I said it, Mark 3. <laughs> so here we are in Mark 3. Look at this, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, Jesus did, and a man was there with a withered hand. So the word there in Greek for withered is dried up or dead. It's withered. It's, it's dead. It's useless. It doesn't work. And he's got this dried up, withered hand. I wonder if he's had it all his life. You know, I wonder if maybe he got some kind of, I don't know, some kind of disease that caused this, and he's been living with it maybe all of his adult life, maybe for years. I just don't know. It doesn't tell us. He's just a man with a withered hand. And look what the religious people do. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. What? Doesn't this hurt your feelings a little bit? Because these are the religious people. They're the ones looking for the Messiah, hoping and teaching, praying for the day of the Lord when the Messiah would finally come. And they've seen Jesus with his exousia authority. They've watched it happen, right? They've, they've heard the stories and they've seen him do the healings. And you can see that they clearly expected him to exercise his exousia there. They expected it, so they know it's coming. So you would think, you would think that the religious people would be like, do, 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 Jesus, look at him, look at him, get him, look at the withered, get, just, you can do something, you, you can do it. Hey, watch this, watch this, watch, watch this guy. This is gonna, this is gonna be awesome. That's what you'd think they'd be doing. But instead, of seeing Jesus and excited about Jesus exercising his exousia. They just want to exploit this withered hand man to be bait so they can trap Jesus. Their hearts are already so hard. They just want to punish Jesus. And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. So he says in verse 3, he says to the withered hand man, he says, come here. Come here. What in your life is withered up? What in your life is all dried out? Maybe it's your health. 
you know, you can remember when you used to be vital and full of energy and, you know, running around like all these kids were this week at VBS. <laughs> but now you can't believe how many pills you have to take. You know, now, now it's all you can do to get out of bed. Maybe you're in the hospital way more than you should be. And you've been praying and praying, God, please just take this pain away. God, just take this lethargy away. God, just, God, just make me whole again. I feel like I'm just withering up and dying. Maybe it's a relationship. I was talking on the phone yesterday to a friend of mine, a lady who was crying on the phone about her relationship with her mom. They've been estranged for years. And the only thing they got between them seems to be drama. Every time they interact, it's more drama. And so she's crying on the phone, not sure what to do. Her therapist has told her she should write a letter to explain to mom how mom has made me feel all these years. And she sent me the letter on text message. What is it with text message letters these days? She sent it to me on text message, and I'm looking at it. It's an accusatory letter their therapist encouraged her to write. I'm like, why are you doing this? It's like taking a drama grenade and just tossing it into the middle. You think it's withered now, you're going to just blow it up. It's not going to be healing from this. There's only going to be disaster. She's trying, to, she's trying to make it work. She's trying to stretch out her hand, but no matter what she tries, she just finds it withered. Maybe it's your your business. You just keep trying and trying. You keep working and working. You're ignoring the principle of the Sabbath and you're working all the time, late into the evening, all weekends long, just trying to make hay while you can, right? Just trying to make some money. You're just trying to stretch yourself out a little bit, but what you're doing is you're stretching yourself to the breaking point all the time and you're neglecting what's truly important in your life. Wouldn't you love for Jesus, whether it's your health or your relationship or whatever it is in your life that feels withered, wouldn't you love for Jesus to point at you and say, come here? Wouldn't you love for him just to say, come, come here, let me touch that, come here? Wouldn't you love that? If I'm withered hand guy, I'm going to jump up and run to him. I'm not going to wait a second. I'm not going to go, okay, hold on. It takes me a minute to get up. Uh-uh, I'm, I'm going to get there. And that's what this guy does. He comes to the center of the room with Jesus. In my, in my mind, Jesus turns the guy around and he's got his hands on his shoulders. And Jesus says this to the people around. It's a teaching moment. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? What am I gonna do here? You're looking at me, you know it's the Sabbath, and you want to trap me. You don't want me to heal on the Sabbath, but what is Sabbath really for? What is the heart of God here? He's asking the mercy question. Should I show mercy or not? Should I give life or should I be okay with this withered death? Should I show love or should I let him suffer? 
Jesus is asking the same, the question is the same principle, same principle that he tells us over and over again. It's the next blank on your page. You can't love God if you don't love others. Jesus is proving it right here. You can't love God if you don't love others. They should know this. They're sitting here trying to trap him. Let this guy suffer because, uh, you know, if Jesus heals him, then we got him. If he doesn't heal him, too bad, so sad. They should know this. They should know what God is all about here because God, through the prophets, has explained it to them time and time again. Through Hosea, God says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want your burnt offerings. Through the prophet Amos, God says, hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. In Micah 6, 8, he says, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. Do what is right. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And Jesus reiterates it himself in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is revealing here a deep truth that they should already know that to love is better than to sacrifice. What does this mean for your broken relationship with your mother? What does this mean for your awful attitude coworker? What does this mean for your gay neighbor? What, what does this mean for those kids on Tower Road. You can't love God if you don't love others. And Jesus asked the question, is it gonna be life or death? Is it gonna be healing or hurting? I've shown you what God expects of you. What will you do about it? And then he stands there waiting. And waiting, looking for a response. And here's the response in verse 4 they were silent. I've shown you who God wants you to be. What will you do? And someone whose heart is inclined to God, someone whose heart is softened by the Spirit, when they see the truth, when the truth is proclaimed to them, you know the response. I repent. You're right. I'm wrong. Let's, let's not do this ever again. Let's, let's help this guy. Let's do whatever we got to do to show love, to show mercy. I repent of my anger and my hatred and my legalism. Let's change this. But that's not the response of the religious people. Their response was silence. God had spoken, and they had nothing to say to him. So verse 5 says, He looked around at them with anger. 
Jesus, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, gets angry. He's angered with the religious people and grieved at their hardness of heart. How long will he wait? He has spoken. How long will he wait? I've said before that our most valuable time in this service is our response time. That's when we respond to what God has said and we stand there like we have nothing to say to him. Are we his people? Or are we Pharisees? Do we please him? Or do we anger him? Do we grieve his heart because of the hardness of our hearts? So after he waits and gets no answer, he looks to the man and he says to him, stretch out your hand. And I would imagine this man, he's had to deal with this withered hand. I bet he's tried to stretch it out countless times. I bet he's done whatever he can to, to just try to make it, to try to make it work. But it won't work. He's tried to stretch it out and try to make it work for himself just like you do. But when Jesus gives the command to stretch out his hand, look what happens. It says that he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Praise the Lord. His hand was restored, healed and restored. What does this tell you? I'm asking you, what does this tell you? Oh, you have nothing to say? Come on, what can you learn from this? Trust in him. God shows mercy. What over here? Do good. One more. God's work will be done, whatever. Yeah. I'll tell you, that's one of the things that it tells me. When I look at that, here's what it tells me. The religious people are all gathered around doing nothing about this withered hand man. And Jesus shows them what he expects and they say nothing. So it tells me that God doesn't need my cooperation to get what he wants. He does not need me to do what I'm supposed to do in order for him to get what he wants. All authority, all exousia is his. It's his, even if you choose not to participate. If you choose to never share your faith, he still gets what he wants. If you choose to never give back to him, he still gets what he wants. If you refuse to show mercy and cling to legalism, he still gets what he wants. Even if he stands in your midst and you have nothing to say to him, he still gets what he wants. Don't answer me out loud, but do you take comfort in that? 
Do you take comfort in that? Because you should not. You should not. That ought to terrify you. God's going to get what he wants with or without you. Do you want to be with him or do you want to be without him? Look at the result of in the hearts of those that would not participate. Mark 3, verse 6, the Pharisees, the religious people, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him about how to destroy him. The religious people would not participate with what Jesus was doing. They had nothing to say to him, so he got what he wanted, and it only embittered them. It only hardened their hearts even more. It caused the religious people, the people whose lifelong goal it was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, it caused them to turn and to walk away and to plot how to murder the very Messiah that they had dreamed of. Oh, I wouldn't take comfort in the fact that God gets what he wants with or without you. I would be desperate to be with him. I would be desperate to be used by him. I would be doing whatever I could do. I want to do whatever I can do to get people to him, to see his goodness, to sample his exousia, to taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't want to be left out and embittered. Man, I want to be part of his kingdom. I don't want to miss one little bit of it. Hello, are you with me? Because you're looking at me like you got nothing to say about it. Which side are you going to be on? Are you going to be a spectator? and just become embittered? Or are you gonna be on board with what Jesus wants to do in and through you? This is why Jesus says, abide in me. He says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you are truly my disciples. Rest, he says, rest in me. I'm your Sabbath. I know you're working hard at everything else, but just, just rest, trust in me, be in me. If I abide in you and you abide in me, then you will produce, he says, much fruit. Oh, please stop clamming up with Jesus. Respond to him. And last blank on your page, abide in him. Let him be your rest. Amen.